Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verse 17 through 26. Should be on the screen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it that, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Awesome. Hey, well, thank you so much, Adam. Uh, my name is James Christensen. I'm one of the elders here at Antioch. And uh, Adam and I were texting just a little bit last night. It was interesting. He gave me uh, the choice of three versions. Which version would he uh, read this morning? He said it would be the NIV, the ESV, or the ASV, the Adam Sandberg version. <laughs> So uh, I would highly recommend you ask him after the service um, for that translation. I'm, I haven't asked him yet, but I'm personally very interested. Um, so a few things as we get going. One, kids. So kindergarten through second grade. Your leader is in the back. You're welcome to stay in the service if you want, but we've got kids church for you. So kindergarten through second grade are welcome to run on back. Looks like not as big a group this morning. That's cool. Um, let's see. I think that's the only thing to mention before we jump right in. I said my name is James Christensen. Um, it's really a privilege to be here this morning uh, and to be able to preach the word. Uh, it's always a huge responsibility, and so I just want to thank you all um, for those of you who prayed for me specifically. Um, your prayers really made a huge difference. And then for all of you, thank you for praying for the church generally. Um, we need the Lord's power, and we need him to show up. So I really appreciate your prayers. So today I get to continue uh, the series on the Sermon on the Mount. So these are Jesus' words recorded to us in Matthew chapter 5. And really the focus of the whole sermon series, remarkably different, has been Jesus teaching us and laying out the core values of the kingdom of God. Laying out the core values of the kingdom of God. What are the attitudes? What are the actions? What are the values that should be characteristic of people living under God's leadership? And Patrick has really been, or interim pastor Patrick has really been laying those out. And so today, we find ourselves sort of at a great, actually, turning point or a great transition in the Sermon on the Mount. Up until now, Jesus has primarily been revealing through the Beatitudes heart attitudes that should exist and should be core to every Christian. He's gone through the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. He goes through these attitudes of blessing. 
And these are things that are valued in God's economy. And Patrick very well brought out that these are very different from what the Jewish people of the day valued, but also extremely different than what our 21st century American culture values. So Jesus has been telling us this is where the heart is, and that's where he started out this sermon. And now today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a transition to really what Jesus is going to spend the rest of the sermon on, and that's applying it. Applying it to daily life. Applying these heart attitudes to various things that affect all of us. You don't need to show, do a show of hands here, but if you think about it, what's Jesus going to apply it? He's going to apply it to relationships and interpersonal uh, conflict. That sounds applicable. He's going to apply it to sexual sin. We'll see that next week. He's going to apply it to hypocrisy and just faking religious beliefs. That can be relevant today. What about worry, right? Anybody worrying here? You don't have to raise your hand. But yes, there are things to worry about. And Jesus is going to go through example after example of, okay, here's how the heart attitudes that should exist in every believer, here's how they play out in practical daily life. And so today we're going to navigate that transition. Jesus gives a few different, um, like, sort of a heads up to his audiences, to his audience as he transitions. And then we'll go through that first application point that Jesus brings up. And that's him explaining what the heart of murder is. So that's where we're going today. Um, that's sort of the, the broad picture. And so as Jesus now transitions, he really anticipates two kind of questions from his audience that are the first four verses of our text today. And the first question that naturally comes up to his audience would be, Jesus, you're focusing on the heart. You're targeting the heart. This sounds kind of different than how we have read the Old Testament. Is this really what God is about? Does God really care about more than just our moral standing? It sounds like you are in conflict with the law of Moses. So that's one of the questions that Jesus will address, and that will be our first point today. And then the second one that will come up is he addresses uh, the idea of, well, Jesus, this sounds really different than our religious leaders. This is pretty different than what the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching. And we'll see that Jesus responds like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. My targeting the heart of the matter is different than what your religious leaders are saying. All right, so let's go ahead and move into the first point of the sermon. Uh, you can go ahead and advance the slide. And so uh, Jesus is in this transition here, and I put this first point as that targeting the heart is absolutely consistent with God's eternal laws. Targeting the heart is absolutely consistent with God's eternal laws. Here at the beginning of verse 17 again. He wants to make this abundantly clear, and so Jesus proclaims, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He puts his stake in the ground right away. I have not come to wipe out anything that has come before. There is the moral law that will absolutely still stand. And so I would say underneath this, and when we take it in light of the whole New Testament and really the whole scriptures, that there is a heart to God's law. There is an eternal foundation that exists and has existed far beyond just the Mosaic law. It exists far beyond the Mosaic law because it depends, just, it depends on the character of God. And so we can think about, if we step through history and we go backwards, think about the very first murder we have in the Bible, right? Cain and Abel. They're two brothers, and Cain kills Abel. The Mosaic law was not written there is not one thing written about or given to people, given to the people about the instructions of God. But why was that still wrong? Why did God still say, Cain, you should not have killed Abel? 
It's because it's inconsistent with the character of God. There's the character of God as the foundation. God does not delight in the death of the innocents. Rather, God is concerned with the heart. There is a heart attitude that was in Cain that was wrong. And so therefore, Jesus says, no, my teaching's not inconsistent with the law. There's always been a law. And my teaching is perfectly consistent with the heart's. We could go through two other examples I want to quick bring up. What about cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? So you move on a few thousand years in history. You're now post-flood. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah, were they really guilty for their sexual immorality? They hadn't had the law of Moses. They hadn't had any written instruction from God. And God would say, yes, absolutely. Because there is a greater law. There is a moral law. I am a God of faithfulness who hates when others use, uh, who hates when people use others for self-gratification. It's inconsistent with the character of God. And so therefore, Jesus would say, yes, my teaching that's focused on the heart is absolutely consistent with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And one other one I'll quick bring up. This was interesting to me as I thought about it. Uh, Think about even under the Mosaic Law in David. So this would be kind of the height of when the Jewish nation was politically. King David was king, and at the end of his life, he took a census. And maybe you guys remember this story from the end of Kings as well as Chronicles. And he takes a census, or excuse me, I guess it's the end of Samuel if I remember right. Um, He takes a census of all the people of Israel, and God sends a plague on the people of Israel for David taking this census. Should I move this away? Is this, is it giving back a little bit? It's doing okay? Okay. Cool. So he, uh, God sends a plague for David taking this census. And if you scan the entire Mosaic law, do you see anything about not taking a census of the people? No, it's not there. There is no law against taking a census. So why was David punished? It's because there's a foundation to the law that exists and is an eternal law that exists that says, God does not want people to depend on themselves. God has always been opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And David was building himself up and wanting, I want to know my own strength. I want to assess my own power. His heart was off. And so therefore, God was right in punishing. So in this first part, I just want to emphasize that there is absolutely a heart of the law that flows from God's eternal character. And Jesus wants to set us straight in the Sermon on the Mount that I have not come to abolish this. I have not come to wipe it out. Now, he does clarify something for us, though. Let's keep going. Jesus does clarify that even though I'm not going to abolish the heart of this law, the heart has always been Um, part of God's design. He does say that there are going to be earthly aspects of the Mosaic law that do change. There are going to be earthly aspects of the law that do change. I I went ahead and put it as the shadows of the Mosaic law would change when Jesus fulfills it. So this would be verse 17 and 18. So Jesus says, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And not the smallest stroke or letter shall pass away from the law until... All is fulfilled. So fulfilled, what he's saying is he's carrying out, it's accomplishing, it's achieving the law. Jesus is saying in a way that I have come to carry out the fullest extent of the law, all of God's eternal laws, that foundation that has always existed, as well as all the earthly practices that have existed. And guess what? When I fulfill this, some of the things will change. There will be some shadows that pass away. 
I love, um, I love Hebrews and Colossians on this. Um, both of them describe some of the rituals of the Old Testament, some of the practices, the festivals, the feasts, as shadows of things to come, as shadows of things to come, or a type. And what do we know about shadows? They're not permanent. They're not meant to be around forever. And so I love to think of this. I, I'm, I'm a word picture guy. I, I have trouble visualizing, or I have trouble um, thinking about things without some sort of picture. I envision a landscape right before dawn. A landscape right before dawn. Everything is still dark in shadow, right? The light has not yet come. You can see a little bit, but everything is bathed in shadow. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, the son of righteousness, as he's actually described in Malachi, that's S-U-N of righteousness, as he's described in Malachi. When the son, Jesus, arises, that dawn comes, of course the shadows are going to look a lot different. There's more light. There's a different environment that we are now living in. And so Jesus warns the people that I have come to fulfill it. The sun is dawning. It is here. The shadows will change. And I would even argue that someday we will see another change when the sun dwells with us eternally in heaven and we will dwell with the sun and there will be no more shadows. Paul says that even that now we see dimly in a mirror, but someday we will see him face to face. And so we look forward to that day when there will be a change, another change in the earthly practice of how we see things. All right. One last brief point here before we move on. We could spend a whole sermon talking about how Jesus fulfills the law. We could spend multiple sermons. I actually read um, a few sermons on this. Um, The only thing I will mention is by Jesus fulfilling the law, what's one of the big implications? It's that he has set himself up to be our sacrifice, to help us get to God. So one of the things that we maybe many of us know, but God is perfect. God dwells in inapproachable perfection. And one of the things I love, too, that, there's a co- that uh, is a comment in modern culture is people know no one's perfect. If you walk around on the streets of Minneapolis and you say, yeah, no one's perfect, pretty much everybody's going to agree with you. So we have on this hand, no one's perfect. But we have at this point, God is perfect. And Jesus comes in and he says, you know what? I am going to fulfill, fulfill everything. I am going to fulfill all the law and I will take my perfection from fulfilling it and give it to you. I'll trade it. So that is one of the implications of fulfilling the law. And like I said, we could have a whole sermon on it, but uh, we'll keep going. So that's one of the arguments that Jesus uh, sort of refutes in advance. He worries that the people are going to say, like, Jesus, aren't you just talking something completely different than um, the Old Testament about what we know of God? And Jesus says, no, this isn't different. This is the same thing. Okay, so moving on then to the second point. Targeting the heart is completely different than what your leaders are targeting. Targeting the heart is completely different from what your leaders. Jesus anticipates the crowd saying like, you know, this isn't what the Pharisees are saying. And what Jesus says here in verse 20, we'll pick it up. Jesus says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I was struggling with how to put this in modern context, because honestly today, many of us know, especially if you've grown up around churches, that the Pharisees, you you view them as hypocrites. 
when you say like you have to be better than the Pharisees, to most of us today, it's like, well, well, duh, you have to be better than the Pharisees. They actually weren't, weren't that great. But I want to set it up a little different way. I want to um, set it up with someone who we would see as sort of the super elite Christian, okay? And I'm actually going to do this Dan Moose style. So this is going to be interaction. So, so prepare yourself here. So I'm going to make up a f- fictitious Christian here. We'll call her Mary Smith, Okay, I don't know if we have any Mary Smiths in the congregation today. As far as I know, we don't. But you're our example, whoever you are. Um, what are going to be? What are you going to see in Mary Smith? What's going to make her the super elite Christian of the day? A servant heart. A servant heart. Absolutely. Good. Good job, Mary. <laughs> what else is going to characterize Mary? Humble. Humble. There we go. <laughs> praise, praise for at least an hour every day. Awesome. Always goes to church. Spends time in scripture, totally. Go for it. Lots of volunteer time. Absolutely. And what was this person back here? Ooh, yeah. Memorizes lots of scripture. So, quick question is. Does Mary have a spouse? And if so, what's that like? Or what's her family life like? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Just superwoman, right? Super mom. Okay. So I don't know about you, but there I know people, and sometimes it could be myself, that you could put somebody's name in place of Mary. Can you think about someone who maybe you would put in place of Mary? That, Wow. That person is just awesome. Wish I could be more like them. And what Jesus is essentially saying, I'll read verse 20 with a little different twist then. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of Mary the super Christian, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. And you can see maybe, hopefully a little better, how for the people of the day, just hit them like a ton of bricks. It would just hit them like a ton of bricks. Patrick and I um, were talking about the sermon, you know, kind of plotting out, thinking about what to say. And he brought up, and I think he might be right, I wonder if some people even just got up and left. Or I wonder if some people just mentally checked out. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes that happens. Just mentally check out. I wonder if people just like, well, I can't do it. I can't be it. How could I ever be that good? How could I live up to the perfect Christian? And I think that Jesus would respond with something like this. I think he would say, well, of course you can't. Of course you can't make it to heaven on your own. Of course you can't be perfect. God is perfect, and you would have to be perfect to reach him, but no one is. But I think he would say, don't worry. I have fulfilled. I have fulfilled the law. I have lived it perfectly, and I will take your place outside heaven and die on that cross and give you my place in heaven. I think he would say that to you this morning. So that would be one response. It could be a response of discouragement, but that wasn't the response of the Pharisees. So some people might hear God's words and see Mary the super Christian and respond that way, but some people, like the Pharisees, might become angry or defensive for their pride was hurt. I'll be honest, I think if there were any Pharisees in the audience of Jesus' day, I think they mentally checked out. 
I think they probably spent the rest of the Sermon on the Mount trying to invent ways in their own mind that actually they are good enough and invent ways in their own mind to bring Jesus down and target him. Because isn't that what we see through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew? What's the, what's the trajectory of the Pharisees? Cutting Jesus down, bringing him down, trying to elevate themselves and prove themselves better. And so my question for you is when our pride is hurt, when someone mentions that we are inadequate in some different way, do the wheels start turning in your head about how to shoot that other person down? I'll be honest, they can in mine. Or do they come to self-justification about, hey, how this person doesn't understand. I'm actually better in this way. I'm actually better in this way. That's where my heart goes. And that's one of the things that Jesus is saying, no, none of us can make it. I think he would respond to people like me or people like the Pharisees that, yes, God is perfect and only perfect people can be around him. Now, please just lay down your pride. Lay down your self-sufficiency. Accept the trade of my perfect life and I will take your failings and your pride and die in your place. All right. So that takes us through the transition. This sermon really had actually, you'd almost cut it into two parts. There's part A and part B. So this was the transition that Jesus wants to remind his followers that I am totally consistent with the law and that I will not be consistent with what you've been hearing for your religious leaders. So uh, some of you know I'm a professor at Bethel, and this is, I usually tell my students at a transition like this, put a hard line in your notes. We're starting a whole new thought here in the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't, it's not that it has nothing to do with what's coming before, but really this is now the big transition, and Jesus will spend the next, probably for us, our time, the next six weeks worth of sermons describing applications of that heart focus. And so today the first one we see is targeting the heart of murder, targeting the heart of murder. Let's pick it up here in verse 21 and 22. Jesus said, you had heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka or good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court." And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. As I mentioned, I like word pictures. I've read a decent amount of Charles Spurgeon, and he he likes word pictures too, so I think I've got it from him. Um, The word picture I have here is that of an arrow. I'm going with the theme of targeting. And I almost can visualize Jesus here, just, of course, in a metaphorical way. He's taking an arrow. Whoops, I just messed up my mic. That should be fine. it should work. All right. He takes an arrow out of the quiver, and this is the arrow of the sixth commandment. And he says, here is this arrow. It's the sixth commandment. It says, you shall not murder. And he says, you have seen this arrow now for hundreds of years, and you have thought this arrow was destined for the worst of society, for those who are outside these walls, people who are the vilest, the worst offenders. But Jesus holds up the arrow and says, no, The arrow of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, it is actually meant for your heart because murder begins in the heart and mind. Murder physically is just the final outworking of malice. It's the final outworking of bitterness, hatred. But there was a long path to get to that physical outworking. Everything along that path to the physical act of murder 
is heart murder. That's what Jesus is saying. This arrow, it's not just meant for others. It's destined for our own heart. We were thinking about a summary statement for this. I think uh, Patrick and I came up with anything that dehumanizes others or effaces the image of God in them. Any thought, any action, any word that dehumanizes others or effaces the image of God in them. And I want to go here to our thought life. What about grudges, bitternesses, hatred? So for me, there are situations from the past that I can still recall in my mind, and I feel my heart just well up in anger. Maybe you guys don't have those. And I still have to, every time I do it, I have to give them to the Lord. I have to say, Lord, forgive me for being angry. Forgive me for still being frustrated with this person. But there are situations that I could still, if I start meditating on them, that bitterness and anger can still return. And so I encourage you, if you have those, give them over to the Lord. That's the heart that Jesus is shooting at. Or maybe it's not a situation. Maybe it's stinging words. Maybe it's words that someone told you. Maybe it was careless words. Maybe it was intentional or unintentional. In a way, it doesn't matter. Right? Maybe you can bring those up and it still hurts. I encourage you to give those over to the Lord. One of the things that's been very uh, practically helpful to me in this uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. Just read through that. That's one of the things that's practically helped me. And then actually the chapter before, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it talks about how the different members of the body all have value and how they're all knit together for a reason. Because when I'm starting to hold a grudge, it's often because I don't see the value in that person. But reading that 1 Corinthians passage really helps remind me of that. So I just challenge you, where is your heart on that? Where is your heart in the area of murder by the heart definition? All right, moving on then. Let's go into verses 23 and 24. So Jesus, after describing the murder in the hearts, Jesus stresses the importance of these right relationships. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and give your gift. So Jesus really takes this one step farther, right? He says, it's not just about what's inside of you. What if someone else you know is frustrated back at you? He says, it is your responsibility to go and make an honest attempt to be reconciled. It's really taking it to the next level. It's your responsibility to make an honest attempt. They, won't, they don't have to accept it, but you have to go make an honest attempt. And look at what importance Jesus puts on it. He says, even essentially, to put it in modern uh, church terms, even if you're at church... Even if you're in the middle of a worship service, even if they were about to pass the offering plate, we don't do that here anymore, but if you were about to pass the offering plate and you were thinking about putting your offering in there, Jesus says, stop, put that offering back in your pocket and go be reconciled. It's pretty extreme in a way. I love it. Patrick told me this story um, when he got to preach this uh, about a decade ago from his church. He actually instructed his staff when they passed the offering plate, because they still did that at his church 10 years ago, um, to not do it until the end of the service. And he told people, take this verse seriously. 
put your offering back in your pocket and don't give. And when they counted up the money at the end of that week, he said it was half of what <laughs> was standard. And I, he said there was one member, of the, or one member of his elder team or something, they were talking and they weren't there this Sunday. And the elder was like, what happened on Sunday? <laughs> and Patrick was like, no, this was good. This is exactly what we wanted. This was exactly what we wanted. Set it aside. And so now in the day of electronic giving, I know, I know it's kind of different in a way, but I'm serious. If you need to put your electronic giving on pause, fantastic. Praise God. Hold on to it. Put it back in your pocket, so to speak, and wait. First, go and be reconciled, and then come and give your offering. Whether it be the physical offering of donation, or even, I would say, your offering of worship as well. So the summary of this point would be that physical sacrifice and worship of God is nothing if the heart is out of line, if the heart is out of line with those around you. All right. Finally then, the last two verses. After stressing the importance, Jesus finally emphasizes the urgency. He emphasizes the urgency of right relationships. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is, talk- who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, that you may be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out until you have paid up the last penny. So this is, in a way, a pretty straightforward point, but I just want to bring up the obvious that there's a deadline to this. There is a deadline to this. To reconciling relationships on earth, of course, if someone would die or pass away, that's an obvious deadline. But even I think there are times where the hearts, maybe there's a time period where they're tender enough to still be able to reconcile, and as that distance happens over time, they now become in a place where you can't reconcile. Or at least it becomes much more difficult. I believe God could, of course, overcome all that. But it gets harder with time. And so I would encourage you, if you do have a broken relationship here on earth, go reconcile. Make it this afternoon. You've got time. It's a really important thing to do. And then also, there's, of course, a deadline for reconciling with God. There's a deadline for reconciling with God. If you don't know God, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to be accountable to him. And there's also, yeah, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to be, account, be accountable to him. All right. So that's the passage of scripture. I want to wrap us up here with two different questions uh, as we finish things up. Two different application questions. And they're really pretty obvious. Do you have broken relationships with someone? Do you have broken relationships with someone? Some may say yes, and you need to reach out to people. For me, I personally had two that I had to. One was to my wife. I had to ask forgiveness um, for some attitudes that I had been holding on to. And it's still something that I'm going to battle. It's not like those attitudes just went away magically. Um, But I had to apologize to her for holding on to some things. So that was one that I had to do. And the other was a coworker that I didn't even know that I did anything, but I had the the impression that uh, this individual was um, upset for whatever reason. So... Um, I just encourage you guys, do it. I've had to do it in my own life, and it is a good thing. It is a good thing to be right with the Lord. And maybe some of you don't need to, which is fantastic, or maybe you have tried before, and it hasn't worked. And so I would just encourage you and say, just thank you so much. And I don't think God is here to condemn you. Like, you need to keep trying. You need to keep trying. Once you have made your honest attempt, 
You leave it in the Lord's hands. And I would encourage you, though, to not just leave it completely and that you would continue to pray about it. Pray still that you could be reconciled. But I, I don't think that, I think there are many people that have made an honest attempt. And then you can leave that in the Lord's hands and be at peace. And then the second follow-up question is, do you have a broken relationship with God? Do you have a broken relationship from God? And so if you are here and you still don't know it, or you still don't know God, it's hard to hear, but God is your opponent at law, is what it talks about in the last verses. He is your opponent. He dwells in perfection, and only perfect people can be with God. But we have it over here, what? No one's perfect. No one's perfect. And so how are you going to get there? And the only way to make peace, the only way to reconcile with God is to say, you know what, God, I'm going to take your way to get there. I can't be perfect. I can't do it. I've fallen short. I'm going to accept Jesus as the way to fulfill your perfection. I'll accept Jesus' perfection, and I will give him my imperfection. It's a surrendering to God. It's it's saying, God, I can't do it. So if that's you today, I would encourage you, reconcile with God. There is a deadline for it. There is a deadline. And I would be happy to talk with you more after, and I know there are many people here as well that would love to talk to you. Because all of us were in that same position at one point. I was there. I was God's enemy. He was my opponent. But praise be to God, he has given me a way to be with him through Jesus. And then for those of you who do know God, but maybe you aren't living rightly, maybe there's something in your relationship with God that is broken. It's not that um, you're condemned, but your relationship is still broken. And I would just encourage you um, to go to him, to reconcile in whatever means that would be. Maybe it's a pharisaical attitude. Maybe it's feelings of inadequate or discouragement. I don't know what it would be, but you know in your heart. And so I'd encourage you to go be reconciled to God. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We just thank you too for the opportunity to open up the scriptures. It is a blessing. And so, Father, I ask for a few things here as we close. I ask, Father, just for uh, the words that I spoke the words that are true, I pray, Father, that you would help them to strike deeply in your heart. I pray that that arrow of truth that Jesus let fly 2,000 years ago would still strike home in people's hearts today and that we would be changed, that we would respond, that it wouldn't just be a sermon for others. And so, Father, I pray that the words that are true would stick well and that the words that are just dross would simply float away and be ignored. And Father, I do pray that in this next week we would be able to restore and reconcile the relationships we can and be at peace where possible with all men. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf that he has fulfilled the law. Praise you now and thank you that we can live in that peace. In Christ's name, amen.